0: Evergreen Exchange.
1: Welcome to the second episode of the Evergreen Exchange. Today, I have CIO of Evergreen GovCal, David Hay. Over the years, he's been the primary voice of the Evergreen Virtual Advisor newsletter, I should say, primary author. You can go to our website at evergreengovcal.com and sign up for free. And start receiving the newsletter. This podcast is available on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, and most of the other uh, standard listening podcast apps. For our loyal readers out there, and I emphasize readers, the podcast is not going to replace the newsletter, but it's an alternative way for those who prefer listening over reading as a way to consume some of our content. In this episode, we will share some of Dave's financial thoughts and provide a glimpse into what his life looks like outside of uh, work and, and financial markets. I've been fortunate enough to have a lot of these conversations with him over the years, and, and so, we're, so we're kind of taking stuff that you and I might discuss at family dinner or on the golf course and, and bring it to listeners in and, and, and kind of a casual way where they're going to hear a little bit about you that they might not already know. And then next week is exciting because I'll be interviewing uh, Grant Williams at um, the John Malden Strategic Investor Conference in Dallas, and I believe I'm going to be joined again by Louis. So that should be um, a great, great chance to bring an- another new voice um, to the podcast. And and I know Grant's always entertaining and and funny, so I hope listeners will enjoy that. And I hope you're ready to do uh, the podcast. So, Dad, thanks for joining.
0: Well, you're welcome. Sorry this is kind of a downtick after being with Louie last time. Oh, let's hope that he doesn't listen and hear that. Only in fight does he That's true. He doesn't need more of that. So
1: I think that for a lot of people out there that have been reading you for a long time, some people know you quite well as clients, and others know you from afar. So maybe tell some of the listeners a little bit about your background, your history, and, and sort of how you
0: got started in the business. Pretty boring stuff. Long time ago, many, many presidents ago, when uh, Jimmy Carter was in office, uh, although I, he's still with us amazingly, so I guess uh, that's There's somebody that's even older than I am on the planet Earth, but uh, very, very different world back then. I really started out as your garden variety, smiling and dialing stockbroker, uh, making, I don't know, f- hundreds of calls per week, probably. Uh, some weeks, well over five hundred, and it was uh, you know a time before. How'd you get to all the phone numbers? Eh, it was pretty creative. <laughs> there were country club rosters, which was kind of a no-no, but I managed to uh, to get a hold of. Uh, I figured people at country clubs had money, so that's what I would do. And of course, back then there was no call blocking, so it was a lot easier. But it was still brutal. But, one of the things that I did that was unique, uh although I had somebody else that was starting out at the same time that did the same thing, was to focus on opening money market accounts because this is when interest rates were absolutely going nuts. I mean, we had at one point in nineteen eighty one over twenty percent interest rates on short term securities. I mean just so different than what we're dealing with today. So my thought was, the financial industry is so intangible, trying to sell that over the phone is like a double whammy, so go with something that's very tangible, uh, interest rates. People could relate to interest rates, and so we, and when I want to say we, this, this other person who was my main uh, kind of friendly rival at the time, this was Dean Witter Bellevue in 1970 and 1980. Uh, which is when Paul Volcker, who was the Fed chairman back then, drove interest rates up to levels far above inflation. Nobody really thought inflation could be conquered because it had been doing nothing but increasing since the mid-60s. So it was a great time to open a ton of accounts, and the firm uh, had this policy where they would pay fifty dollars per new account, thinking it would be a stock type of an account that would generate. And we were opening all these free money market accounts, and they were still paying us. So it was. Uh, they changed the rules not long after we did that, but as it turned out, it was great. For the firm, because we captured a lot of assets and uh, we were well positioned for when interest rates started to fall, and and that was something that I did recognize even early on was that interest rates were going to come down. That Volcker really meant business, and I think that's relevant because here we are 40 years later, 40 years basically, and I've been playing that game pretty consistently for four decades. That's how long interest rates have been in a downtrend. And pretty much every time they've gone up, I felt that it was a buying opportunity. Uh, but of course, now we're in a very different environment where we could be before long at the end of this amazing decline in interest rates.
1: So I'm, I'm not sure that I described what a podcast is to you, but I ask questions and then, and then you answer and then I ask more questions. It's not um, meant to be a monologue. Oh, I kind of like monologues. <laughs> um, some of the some of this podcast is going to be me asking questions that obviously I know the answer to um, but others are going to be the attempt to get a little bit of a debate going and show people um, a little bit of behind the scenes that that there's obviously your opinion and there's also the opinions of, of other people that are on the investment team and I think that people find it interesting to hear a little bit of the back and forth and I think that one of the things that that I'd like to ask you is, and to give you another another kind of economics question. Then we'll we'll mix it up between economics and and personal questions. Um, what what do you say to people, maybe in my camp that say we used to look at things like unemployment? We, inflation, profit margins, interest rates, and, and we try to read the tea leaves on, on economic data and then make forecasts and try to position portfolios for surprises on either end of that, um, on either end of the spectrum. And I think there's a lot of people out there today who are following markets and saying, you can just throw all that stuff out the window. That that stuff is old, is, is the old school way of doing it. Now you just need to listen to central banks and what they're saying and what they're targeting. And you, you might not agree with that. In terms of what might not work forever, but you'd, it's hard to refute it over the past 10,
0: 12 years. Well, I'd agree with that. I think that what the central banks have done, most notably the Fed, have has really changed the ground rules, the way things operate, and it's it's clearly extended the cycle, uh, both for the stock market and for the economy. I mean, we are within a very short time of the longest ever uh, up cycle, although it is the weakest. So, it's. I agree with that. I actually think we're in a, in a new world. Interestingly, I just got an email from one of my friends who's a very prestigious newsletter writer, and, and I asked him if he was still short of certain security. He said, I'm out of the market completely. I think it's totally untradeable these days. You don't have to tell us the security
1: because that'll get us into compliance No, I won't. Com- don't worry. In compliance problems, but you can tell me who the newsletter
0: writer was uh, Michael Lewis, the credit strategist. Sure. sure. Uh,
1: as actually a little plug for our next edition of the podcast, we're going to be interviewing another friend of years who's a newsletter writer not named Michael Lewitt his name will be Grant Williams so that's a little teaser always a great
0: interview he also has a little bit of the monologue problem well, so this it, is good warm up it, 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 it runs in the other genre I guess the, the personality set of anybody that writes newsletters his is a little bit longer than yours that's another reason I like Grant. It makes me look good. <laughs> what is his like 49 pages Sometimes. or something? Sometimes. Sometimes. A lot of graphs though.
1: You you came really well trained to to be a stockbroker given your um, educational background. Would you agree with that? <laughs> right. That is
0: uh, What was your what was your what was your major? Tell the listeners. Cinema studies and filmmaking, but to make it even worse, not from USC or UCLA, but from the University of Washington. I may be the only one that ever came out of there. Or at least that admits it. Speaking of movies,
1: go back to the, let, let's hear the most contemporary movie you've, you've watched because generally they,
0: te- they, they tend to be a little long in the tooth. Well, I do consider movies from the 90s to be rather current, uh, new age. But uh, in my defense, I am watching a film or a series called uh, Vernon and Fosse about Bob Fosse, which I believe was an HBO recent special. It's, uh, and it's actually quite good. But it's about older movies like Cabaret. Oh, So you found a way to watch a new movie about old movies. There you go. What's What's better than that? What's your favorite movie of all time? Well, I certainly would put Chinatown up there. Uh, The Searchers, the John Wayne classic, John Ford Western from the 50s, uh, The Godfather. I mean, at least I don't slum in cheap fare. That's true, that's true. Quality stuff. So
1: since we're talking about um, spanning time... Talk about how the industry's changed since you got into the industry. What what seems to to be different than what you remember, and kind of permanently changed, and what kind of has maybe stayed the same.
0: Well, I think beyond interest rates. I mean, that's obviously a massive change that affects everybody's lives in the world to have interest rates collapse the way they have. At first, it was good. I mean, it did a lot of good things to have interest rates come down from usurious levels. Uh, But putting that aside, obviously, the other massive change has been index funds, which when I started were just a blip, and now they drive things. And of course, back then, there weren't the algorithmic traders, which, you know, that creates a whole different force on the market uh, that, that there's kind of a synergistic or amplifying effect between... Uh, index funds which don't think and are fully invested and then the algorithms which can drive things that they read. it's just it's this kind of cause effect push-pull type of thing and it's really distorted the markets but but you say uh, index funds have come along and
1: I'm assuming you're talking about passively uh, about ETFs and passive funds but you saw a wave of mutual funds come charging onto the scene and and they've Um, They've been the primary victim of the emergence of ETFs. Do you think that ETFs might suffer the same fate as you've seen active fall out of favor to passive? You've heard Jeff Gundlach say that as sure as day follows night that you're going to see um, passive go out of favor and active come in. Do you agree with him?
0: Yes, though I think there's always going to be a very big role for passive. And when you say ETFs, I mean, most ETFs are Passive, though that's changing, and there's thousands of them now with all kinds of different missions. So I, I don't think that's going to. Certainly, passive is here to stay, but I think there will be this pendulum swinging effect where at times the index funds look invulnerable or invincible. They're. They're tough to beat in a bull market, partially because they're fully invested, and also because they, by definition, buy the most popular companies at the time, which feeds on itself. And it's been feeding on itself for a long time, with only a few real serious shakeouts in recent years. So that works great until things reverse. I I think that's where Gunlock is going, and I would agree that you really have to analyze these things over a full market cycle. I believe cycles still happen. Full markets, sideways markets, sideways markets, bear markets. But all we've really seen, with as I said, just brief exceptions, is the the, the up cycle for 10 years. So it's uh, you know it, it's very tough, I think, to to judge those things accurately until you see the reversal.
1: And I've heard you say this before that in in. You know, 99, 2000. What was the biggest part of of an index fund? It would have been technology. Tech and telecom,
0: Tech and telecom were almost 50 percent of
1: the index. And but. that wasn't a very good time to have that be the biggest part of the index. And then you fast forward to 08, 09. Biggest part was financials. And that was also not the best time. Precisely. So, so they don't. So maybe at the end of cycles, they get they get too distorted. But maybe in in in. Neutral times or, or not not late in a in a market cycle, they're 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 fine. But talk about bond ETFs versus equity ETFs and sort of the the, con- the contrasting effect that you might see there.
0: Yeah, that's a great question because there, I think you can make a very powerful argument in favor of index equity funds. You know, the, the tax efficiency, the lack of the cash drag, uh, and, and just the reality that they tend to outperform. Uh, Though, one of the more fascinating things is if you look at at them on a fund flow basis where you actually track how do the people, what kind of return do they get based on when they invest even in index funds, that changes the number pretty drastically because people have a tendency to buy high, sell low, so that hurts even index funds. Putting that aside. Where I do think that there is a tremendous opportunity for active management is with the bond, in the bond area, because bond ETFs, once again, it's a no-think type of thing. They're just replicating what is the largest bond holding an index. Now, you can make a case with equities that, well, hey, Apple's such a great company. It deserves to have the the market cap that it does, which is right now about a trillion dollars. But in the bond world, what happens is, the biggest components of the bond ETFs and indices are the most indebted companies. Uh, now, if it's an investment-grade ETF, it's going to be still investment-grade, but it could be on the cusp of being downgraded, and that's when it's really no fun. So you go from investment-grade to junk bond, and your bond gets clobbered. And so if you're able to avoid following You know, blindly those indices and be able to underweight or not hold those bonds which are going to be downgraded, you can add a lot of value, which, you know, fortunately we've been able to do. Tell
1: listeners what David Hay likes to do in his downtime.
0: What's downtime? (laughs) No. Uh, At my age, which is rapidly rapidly approaching the, the Paul McCartney Beatles age of 64. Uh, so that's, uh, yeah, it's 40 years in the business, 40 years in the business uh, in March of this year. So kind of a big event in my life. And, uh, you know, I, I like golf. I grew up playing golf and didn't play when you and your brother were young until you guys decided you loved golf uh, when Tiger Woods won the Masters in 1997. So I had to relearn the game. It's been a 22-year odyssey. Still <laughs> I was going to say you one. love golf, but I've seen there are times where you hate golf. Well, I always love golf. Golf just doesn't necessarily love me back. <laughs> what else do you do? You don't just golf. No, I mean, I work out. I used to like to ski, and uh, unfortunately, tennis has been on the back burner pretty much uh, as well. Uh, but, you know, hoping to get back into those things. And we, uh, we've we got a couple of dogs that, uh, you know, we, we pal around with, and we're do have uh, we blessed to have another home down in the sun in Indian Wells, California. So it's... Uh, it's a busy life, but it's a good life. What will you do right after this podcast? I'm going to go. Uh, I'm also a late-in-life voter, and maybe that's where you're going with this. Uh, I do love uh, the boat, and it's, this is going to be less boating. Open- it's more cocktail
1: cruising. Well, I mean, uh, I mean you kind of make see, it sound like you're out that. in the San Juans, you know, navigating the waters, looking at the tide charts, all that stuff. I mean, floating <laughs> yeah, sounds, facts. like, pretty
0: proficient. Not a lot of tide charts in uh, Maidenbauer Bay that you have to worry about. But, uh, yeah, your your mom's drinks are actually much more hazardous than any <laughs> shifting water conditions. Maybe even than the ferries. <laughs> right. Okay, so now we'll, I'll, I'll try to
1: get you going on, on some things that that we don't see maybe eye to eye on in, in the investment world. Um, I'm was, glad you're limited the, limiting that to the investment <laughs> world. So one of the, one of the points that I said to you that I wanted to make and, and, and you said, oh I don't know about that. I don't I'm not sure that I agree is you know we were taught early in finance school that you
0: decided that you'd skip to watch movies Um, we're we're talking oh I just want to point out one thing that when I was going to the University of Washington in the 1970s we had a bunch of uh, socialist and Marxist economic professors and they really didn't appeal to me so so you just skipped that part I just skipped that part got it so I've said
1: to you we're taught there's this concept which you're now familiar with I'm pretty sure which is called diversification and we're taught very early on that diversification is one of the like foundational elements of, of investing and you need to be really diverse. And so we're taught, you know, well, you should own some technology sector, you should own some energy sector, you should own some consumer discretionary, whatever. You're told to spread it out across all these different sectors. And maybe after it, people started realizing that spreading out among sectors was a good idea, they started realizing that we should probably start spreading it out around countries. And I think that, that This was sort of the old way of thinking. And then you think about what a company looks like today. Think about, let's take Microsoft for example. Microsoft clients, in my opinion, they cover almost every sector. Who isn't using Microsoft Office? Who isn't using the cloud? Microsoft has businesses as business in so many other countries why can't you just buy companies that are tech which i happen to think is the one of the best sectors it's the most innovative productive interesting sectors that, that there is if not the most and you have natural diversification in their client base in the in the geographies in which they operate why why do you have to own why do you still have to own sectors doesn't it don't these com- these companies already do it for you
0: well i think you could have made that argument over Many decades with companies. If you went back to the 70s, like IBM, and say they're so diversified, they're so multinational, and and maybe throwing a, a handful of other companies that were dominant at the time, and you know it worked for a while. Works in different market phases. Uh, you know, in our right cycle portfolios, we've been overweight large cap growth, which is mostly tech, uh, for uh, like 15 years. It's been. I never thought it would happen, and I do think that's what's been. What's allowed technology to to have such a long runway this time, is that there there has been kind of this this element of out of favoredness even within the tech world, and you know, certainly go back to December there were a ton of tech bargains at that point, and we did buy up a, a number of those or or even initiate new positions.
1: Uh, so tech bargains. So that's a great transition, perfect because I knew you were going to say yeah, you should. I, I like tech. You like bargains. But haven't companies like Facebook, like Amazon, haven't they thrown a wrench in how we're taught in, in undergraduate school and graduate school how to do securities analysis? You're taught discount cash flow, all these things that relate around profits. And companies like Amazon have come along and said, yeah, profits are great, but you know what? We're just gonna say, who cares about profits? It's all about revenue. And, the, and, and you could look at Facebook and say, Maybe that's not a real company or something. I mean, maybe it's a fad. But you can't look at Amazon and say, that's a fad. And that's a company that if you said the biggest company in the world is essentially, this company is going to rise out of almost nowhere, never really, I mean, never materially make a profit and become the biggest
0: company in the world, every, every professor would have given you an F. I got a few of those along the way, but I actually gave myself a big fat F on it because, as you know, I had a chance to invest in Amazon when it first started, when it was a venture capital investment, and my uh, my epic line, which will I'll take to the grave with me, is can't anybody sell books on the internet? So uh, I guess when it comes to having vision for companies that can go up astronomically, mine isn't too good. Uh, and at the time, I don't think it was an unreasonable uh, take on it, because really, they were going to be, they were going to go on against Barnes and Noble and uh, Borders, and it was like, well, what was their real competitive advantage? And, but you bring up a good point, which is that, th- that a company like Amazon can defer the profit uh, as long as they're gaining enough market share. I think that works great in a bull market. It doesn't work. I mean, Amazon almost went broke when the tech, tech bubble burst. Uh, And we're back into that period, I mean, Amazon's very unusual. I think to assume that other companies are going to be able to do what Amazon uh, has done, which is happening today is all these unicorns now all of a sudden are going public and getting astronomical valuations, even though there's really no, any any near-term chance of making money. So the Amazon mentality is taking over, and I think that becomes pretty dangerous when that happens. Uh, But, you know, like Facebook, I mean, Facebook's a very profitable company, sells at a fairly reasonable multiple, Google's one that we've owned for a long time, and Microsoft, which for years people used to criticize us for, you remember, for holding on to Microsoft and you know, that's, I guess I feel more comfortable buying a company that's got a reasonable valuation that all of a sudden becomes, you know, they really start to get their act together as Microsoft has done, and then they get the growth valuation. That's when you make the big money, although obviously, and you've been right about Amazon, by the way. You've been an Amazon fan for a very long time and uh, have owned it in your portfolios. I hope it's okay to say that, but uh, it's that one I've struggled with. It's they're just. I like profits. I like cash flow. Call me old-fashioned. No, I get I get that, and that's sort of what I was trying to tease you with. Is that,
1: is it? Are we going to live in a world for the next twenty years where there are going to be companies that sort of that become rather dominant without ever really caring about bottom line? Is that is that a new is that a new trend, or is Amazon
0: an anomaly? I think it's mostly an anomaly. I think that in a you're going to get to an environment which is much more discriminating much more demanding than we're in right now, and it's going to be a show me the money, you know, Jerry Maguire kind of thing. Uh, So when money is really cheap and things have been going up, you can kind of get away with it, but uh, I think Amazon is, you know, for the most part, an anomaly. So I don't see that this kind of environment that we're in is going to last too much longer, but I would have said that a few years ago. What I would point out is where I think what you're saying is true is that this is a slow growth world that we're in. And if a company can grow fast in a slow-growth world, it's going to get a premium valuation. And in this environment, even if growing fast is really revenues, not so much profits. So that that's probably going to be the case for all. because I don't see the world accelerating. I think we've got a real growth problem on our hands. So the trick is that right now, as, as even Warren Buffett has pointed out, the companies that have really good operating Uh, Characteristics are extremely expensive, with almost no exceptions. That's a challenge.
1: Okay, I'll I'll give you one that I know that you like that you like to talk about, and then you're welcome to monologue on this one. Talk to listeners about MMT. What is it? Why is it so scary? Why is it so so meaningful to what's going to happen
0: to people's portfolios in the next? few years. Well, as you know, I, and as I've written about, I think MMT, what modern, is MMT, modern monetary theory is what it stands for. And translate that to the average listener? Who what might it not. really means is that a government like the United States that issues debt in its own currency doesn't have to worry about running huge deficits from the standpoint of will it go broke? Will it not be able to pay the interest on its debt? which has happened to many countries. Many countries have had to default to essentially go broke because they haven't been in that position. So the U.S. is incredibly blessed in that way. We've It's got like to, a credit card with no limit. Well, to a point. So we're, the point in the view of the MMT believers is that once inflation starts to go up, that's when you know you're at the limit of your, your credit card and therefore, you have to make changes, and the changes could be raising taxes. Interestingly, the MMT believers are not fans of high taxes on the rich. They look at taxes as being an economic depressant. Therefore, they don't really like that. They believe that if you want to do a $2 trillion infrastructure program, just go ahead and, this is one of the other radical things, is spend it first, then figure out how to pay for it. And that's just completely different than anything that's ever been done, other than maybe during wars. Uh, So that's a big change. Uh, But the concern, and right now, because inflation is so subdued, where you have a lot of folks worried that inflation is too low, then when you talk to Grant, ask him about that, because he'll tell you that he thinks inflation is so mismeasured, that it's running much higher than it really is. And I don't know. That's a religious debate that I I don't want to get into, because I see both sides of that. And I mean, think technology. Technology is so big, it's a bigger part of our lives, you pointed out, and prices fall Mm -hmm. with technology. but. Perhaps the only sector where it is consistently, you see prices falling and efficiencies improving. Right. Though, I mean, I do think that one of the great things about capitalism is that it tends to produce surpluses. If you look at it historically, and until the creation of the Fed, we had more deflation in the United States than inflation. So capitalism creates surpluses, socialism, which unfortunately is also part of the way things are trending, not just to MMT, but actual socialism, with some very popular socialist politicians in the U.S. now, creates shortages. And all you have to do is look at countries that have followed those policies, like, unfortunately, Venezuela right now, and either the the socialists are kicked out of power or you get hyperinflation. And, and of course, you've got hyperinflation in Venezuela right now. And that's my fear with MMT, is that they, you know, those that, that support it believe that once inflation, you know, really rears its ugly head, then they will react and they'll raise interest rates or they'll raise taxes. And I I think once that genie's out of the bottle, it's going to be very tough. So that's why I think it's so important to be focused on this. It may not happen, but if it does, it has the potential to change this 40-year paradigm that we've talked about right at the beginning, that I've been playing since the start of my career. But you you would acknowledge that we could be
1: years before... I mean it's hard to say when inflation is gonna happen, but if, if if the new paradigm is spend as much as we can until it gets until we
0: actually see inflation, that could be trillions of dollars from now. Well I agree with the trillions. I don't know that it would be that long in time. If you look historically when a something like MMT is implemented, it works for a while. There's kind of this boom phase. Uh, but it doesn't last too long. I mean, it's like a year or two before the markets inflation- Markets
1: price it in. They start saying, oh my God, we're spending so much money, there's going to be-
0: Yeah, well, that's an interesting point, is what would happen and how the markets re- would react to something like MMT. Part of what they're saying, that those that are endorsing it, is that the Fed should interest rates, for example, start to rise. So let's say the bond market got really nervous about- what it meant for inflation and interest rates, and interest rates started to rise, that the Fed would then intervene and do what they've already done, which is to buy debt directly, which is effectively monetize the debt. And this would be really overt debt monetization. And really, uh, the whole thing about MMT is it it would be extremely aggressive money, money printing that would likely involve currency, not just Digital reserves, which the Fed used to buy all the QE stuff. So, we could be taking basically this environment we've been in of very radical monetary policies for the last 10 years, we could be taking it to a whole new level. And that's when it it starts to get pretty scary. Uh, And I think, you know, you were talking about diversification. I think that that's because it is a legitimate possibility. I think a wealthy investor needs to start positioning now for that potentiality. Which means hard assets, and of course, hard assets have underperformed for 40 years, for the most part. So they're cheap; nobody likes them, and so that that could be really, the way, uh, you know, where things pivot. Uh, you know, not just the Powell pivot, but uh, you know, truly a massive pivot of uh, you know changing the investment environment totally.
1: And there's other things that investors can do with their portfolios outside of hard assets, and if
0: you're going to be in a in a, an inflationary environment, especially on the fixed income side. Well, that's a good point. So we're in a period where we think that the Fed has done hiking, that the economy is not as strong as popularly believed. Though this week there's been more data showing that it's uh, it's pretty soft. So we think that actually for the next year or two, that you might have to have a very different approach, betting on lower interest rates, than you're going to have say five years out. Uh, but we don't know. I mean, that's it's. It's going to be interesting to see whether we avoid a recession again over the next, say, 12 to 24 months. The odds are becoming very unlikely that that'll happen, but it could. Switching gears here, um, one of I think that a lot of
1: the listeners here are probably newsletter readers, and I think that that the a lot of the newsletter readers who who follow you see the world very similar to you. I think that there's some people who. Uh, from time to time, write in and say, "Oh well, Dave's always bearish. He's he's a perma bear," and and somebody who was who was working at Evergreen, being me in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, saw um, saw a lot of what we did and what you were doing, which was buying into sort of the teeth of the storm. I tell people all the time that um, you know we had. 500 clients at the time, and when we called through all of them, talking to them, saying, "Hey, market's down 50, 60 percent. This is a really good buying opportunity." Um, None of them did it willingly, and few of them did it reluctantly, um, which is sort of amazing. Because whenever you ask an investor what you know what their goal is, they say they say buy low, sell high. So why don't you talk a little bit about what you think your style is as an investor, um, and what what
0: environment works well and what environment doesn't? Sure. Well, one of the things that I think that I have consistently done over my career is in panics, and, you know, there's two kinds of panics. People think of a panic as always a negative environment, but there's also buying panics. And in those environments, I've consistently gone the other way. So in a buying panic, I've been willing to take profits. In a selling panic, I've been willing to buy. And the team, uh, you know, for years it was really, you know, just kind of the Dave show, but for the last 15 years or so, we've been a team and uh, getting increasingly deep team. And, you know, one of the really helpful things was during 08-09, even though, as you point out, clients were very reluctant. In fact, it was hard even with some of the more durable clients from prior downturns to get them not to sell out. Uh, it was... Forget buy. Forget by. It was... I, mean, I remember one client who has just been a champion over the years, and he was... Basically, he wanted out. The only thing we could do was get him into the income. The income securities we talked about earlier was really the only way we could get people to do any buying at that point because they did understand the yields. But, uh, you know, the, you're right about this image that because that was a long time ago. It was, it was 10 years ago. And I do remember saying, I'll put out a newsletter, the only thing that we didn't like at the time was cash and treasuries. Everything else was basically a buy. Mm -hmm. And I remember getting emails saying, you're crazy. The Mm -hmm. only thing I want to hold is cash or uh, or treasuries. Those are the only things I'm not losing money on. But, of course, we know in hindsight that was one of the most epic buying opportunities ever. Uh, But, again, especially in income securities. But, uh, you know, look more recently, December. I mean, there was a sheer panic at the end of December. Uh, and I think one of the advantages we had is we were operating there during the holidays and able to buy, you know, when so many people were gone on on you know for the Christmas holidays. Uh, and also, uh, you know, when I think back to uh, the late '90s, I mean that was a painful period to be more of a contrarian because, I, as you point out, I'm not necessarily uh, always bearish. I just like to get good value. I believe that when you buy things cheap, you get high returns, and when you buy things at high prices, you get low returns. That's just really a fact. Now, there's sometimes gross stocks that are so powerful that it almost doesn't matter what price you pay. Now, typically, those are smaller companies. It gets really tough when you're dealing with large market cap companies to pay very high valuations, but we we'll, won't we'll get into that, that's maybe a little too esoteric. So when you look at the investing landscape today, where do you see value? I mean, I'm guessing you're not going to say the U.S. stock market. Well, there still are parts. I mean, we we went on record at the end of December, early January, saying the market was going to rally hard. And we thought it would be led by the uh, the beaten down areas. And I think, in general, that's true. Some of those companies that we have in our portfolio that have gone up 100% so far this year because they were so decimated or devastated uh, last year. Uh, But Obviously, big rally. There's not the kind of values that there were. There's still some, some bargains, even in the U.S., I mean, particularly energy. I mean, energy is an area that has gone through two wicked bear markets over the last decade. The most recent started in 2014. Uh, and you can get very good yields, which people kind of forget about. It's sure nice to be able to get something that pays you a 7% yield while you wait and think that there's great value there as well. Uh, so, and then overseas. I mean, lots of very cheap markets overseas. They've lagged the U.S. tremendously. If we do move into a period where U.S. economic policies become very reckless, look like MMT, uh, I think money, even people who typically have a home country bias to the U.S., are going to be much more willing to put their money overseas. Okay. Uh, that's, a, that's an interesting transition
1: and in bringing up energy. I think that energy is a controversial topic. I think that there's a set of, of people who think, look, I mean, people are going to drive cars. Um, energy is still the most efficient way to, or, or fossil fuels are still the most efficient way to generate energy. And while all this green stuff is is good, it's probably a lot longer down the pike than than. The markets are, are pricing in, and I, then I think there's the other people who read about the Green Deal and, and talk about you know technological advancements and electric cars and sort of are of this mindset that that fossil fuels are going to become dinosaurs, no pun intended. But where do you where do you fall? <laughs> That's
0: a good and, pun. Where do you fall? And maybe paint both sides of the picture because I think I know where you fall. Well, I believe, and I think our team believes in peaceful coexistence. We believe that they both have a place. When I say they, fossil fuels and renewables. And we have bought and done very well with some renewables, uh, mostly income type renewables. I mean, the tricky part with the particularly solar, which, you know, I think has got lots of potential to solve a lot of the energy needs. I mean, just think about for segue for a second to water. I mean, we've got a water issue in the world, but if you have solar power desalination, uh, because that's a problem with desalination. It's so energy intensive but a lot of the areas where you could really use that happen to get a tremendous amount of sunlight. So, Very bullish long term on solar as far as helping humanity. It's just tough to make money. and Part of it is because the Chinese are such uh, big producers of solar panels so they crash the price of solar panels and bankrupted a number of U.S. producers. It's a tricky area. We've tended to focus on the ones that benefit from the lower prices of the solar equipment. But you're raising a huge point, and I think that you know one thing to be clear on is we are pretty anti-coal, thermal coal, coal used to produce electricity. Because if you look at most of the world's environmental problems, uh, particularly the deaths that occur worldwide because of, of air pollution, it's mostly coal-related. Coal emits something called NOx2, which is very noxious, very poisonous. And it also acidifies the ocean, lots of bad stuff from coal. We've stayed away from that area. Uh, but CO2 is actually not a pollutant, uh, and it's interesting. I think people don't underest- or have greatly ad- underestimated how much more efficient and non-polluting cars are today versus 30 or 40 years ago. Just to give you an uh, amazing factoid in that regard that's gotten very little press, although it was front-page Seattle Times. The state of Washington, the very green evergreen state of Washington, recently closed down all its emissions testing facilities in the state uh, because they said the cars today are so clean they don't need to test them. And they went on to say that the air quality in the area is so much better than it was in 1982. So I think that tells you that the cars really aren't the problem with greenhouse gases. I mean, they're part of the problem, but they're not a major problem. As you, I think, know there's more greenhouse gases emitted by livestock than by all the cars on the planet. So I think there's a kind of a hysteria. Is that why Beyond Meat's IPO doubled? (laughs) <laughs> Maybe that's part of the reason, uh, plus the fact it's healthy. Um, but the, so we see the particularly natural gas. I mean, natural gas is, an, is something that's really good for the environment. That's how the U.S. has been able to get its emissions down, uh, you know, fairly dramatically over the last 20 years, whereas in Asia, emissions uh, are up drastically because they still are so heavily reliant on coal. And one thing to remember is that a lot of the electric vehicles are actually they emit more greenhouse gases than ICES, internal combustion engines, because so many of them are powered in effect by coal because they plug into the grid, which is still heavily uh, influenced by coal.
1: It's funny. It reminds me of of, of um, a client who said that they wanted to sell all their um, their fossil fuel or, or energy companies because they ride in an Uber. Not, not necessarily realizing that just because right. they're not driving doesn't mean that it's not emitting um, pollutants. One, one thing that you said that I'd, I'd push you on is you said that you bel- we believe in a peace, peaceful coexistence. And maybe the peaceful coexistence means, in, in your mind, well, the, you know, it's not going to be one or the other that wins in the immediate term. But are the markets going to price them peacefully? Meaning, haven't we seen tremendous fluctuations in, in both the belief in, in green, greener energy companies and then, and then also kind of perhaps over-punishment of, of fossil fuel companies?
0: Yes, I think for sure. And it's been a multi-factor punishment uh, for energy. I mean, energy was a, a boom. It, it got to be a mania in the, uh, you know, say, six or seven years ago. And it was partially because of the tremendous success that the uh, places like the Permian Basin and, and uh, the Bakken in the Dakotas was having and really caught people by surprise. And that often becomes a magnet for too much money. And, I mean, we might talk a little bit about uh, the pipelines that we hold for our clients and midstream energy infrastructure assets. Uh, and I, we get characterized there as a perma-bull, not a perma bear, but I went to, as you know, an MLP conference in mid-2014, or May of 2014, where there was so much bullishness, it reminded me of tech in the late 90s, and kind of like today, and thought this is crazy. This, we need, and we did drastically reduce all of our energy holdings at that point, point. and then the bottom fell out and as usual, bought in prematurely on the way down. But today, it's, you're right, it's a, just, it's a confluence of negativity. Against energy investments, which is why we like them, because when you have a lot of negativity, what happens? Money doesn't go there. I mean, I think where you really have trouble long term with an investment asset class is when money is attracted to. Too much money comes in, and it's just inevitable. I don't care how good the underlying story is. If enough money keeps coming in, it's going to get overdone. There'll be overcapacity, and then people see things aren't as good as they thought they were. They panic and. And we're, that's what we saw with energy, but that was six or seven years ago. Now it's been behind the moon for a very long time, which are, is what we like. Who are some of your idols in business? Idols in business? Well, I mean, obviously, Buffett. Uh, you know, he's not perfect by any means, but, you know, he's brilliant. <clears throat> he's made mostly great decisions over the years. It gets tougher with you know this capital base, kind of like we were just talking about, gets bigger and bigger. Hard to deploy hundred billion dollars effectively. <clears throat> but it is interesting. You look at this latest energy deal he did with Oxy on the takeover of Anadarko versus Chevron. He's putting a ten billion. He's getting an eight percent yield. So that's my kind of thing. We like cash flow, and he's also getting an equity kicker. That's uh, that's pretty sweet. Uh, You know, I I admire a guy like Bill Gates because not only did he make a fortune, he's been so generous with what he's done to help humanity since then. Uh, You know, I like people that, and they're not massive ego types. They tend oh Gates certainly has anybody that's really successful has an ego, but I think at some point they rise above it. I like to see that. I like to see that in terms of the management teams. I think when you see a company that's run by somebody that's truly an egomaniac that's usually not a good company to hold.
1: One one thing that you and I have debated um, over a cocktail or two is sort of something that you've been kicking around in your your mind and, and, and thoughts lately is is you, you've told me that you were considering moving to Canada. And, and I said, you're crazy. Why would you ever go to Canada? And I think that there's people like me out there that think, you know, yeah, the, we're on a... Um, The politics is a pendulum, you know, when it swings too far to one side, that it swings back and then eventually it swings back. And, you know, that's sort of how I see the world. I think that you view it maybe more as a trajectory than a pendulum. Talk a little bit about why you're considering, uh, beside the fact that the Canadian dollar is cheap.
0: Well, that is a factor. But... That is, That would be a very extreme move on my part, and it would be only precipitated by a very extreme political shift in this country. So, I guess a case in point is back in 1980 81, when Francois Mitterrand won in France, who was a complete socialist, and uh, our partner Louis Gove's father, Charles, moved a big chunk of his family's net worth into Switzerland because he saw that that was going to be a disastrous economic change for France and the financial markets, and he was right, and he was able to preserve wealth when a lot of his uh, fellow countrymen got, got clobbered, uh, and it would take something like that to happen here to cause me to want to do that, uh, but if we do really go a socialist route and if MMT really becomes uh, you know, the law, economic law of the land, then I think you got to look at what do you do to preserve wealth. And it really, at that point, it becomes about real wealth preservation as opposed to trying to keep up with the S&P or, you know, what's your rate of return? It would, it would, that would be just such a radical shift that I think it would require a radical response. But so maybe, I'm hoping that doesn't happen. Obviously. So
1: maybe you see the world as as a pendulum swinging inside of a, grand, a grandfather
0: clock or something, but that eventually, if it swings too hard, it breaks. Well, for sure. I, and that's one reason why I really don't want to do what you just said is that, I do believe, let's just say hypothetically worst case, that we get an extreme left shift with you know, real socialism dominating the country, uh, it will be such a disaster that it's unlikely the American people would stick with that. It would be you know, maybe four years of hell and then a return back. And, but the reality is if you can get protected first and then come in and swoop in after prices had you know, been crushed because of that, uh, that very bad policy shift, then that's when you can really make a killing. You know, you've talked about, you've said that that
1: um, I've heard you say cap, I know that you're a big believer in capitalism, but I think that I've heard you say on multiple occasions that you feel like um, capitalism hasn't given the average American a very good deal in the last two
0: decades. Talk about what you mean by that? I think that's absolutely true. It's just a fact. I mean, when you look at the kind of income and wealth distortions that we have today, where the wealth and incomes more concentrated, at the top 1% or top few percent than it has been since 1929. Uh, it's, that's scary from a number of standpoints, including what happened to the financial markets after 1929. Uh, but I think the, the capitalism gets a bad rap because it's been a very perverted form of capitalism that we've been following over the last 20 years kind of increasingly. It was a little subtle at first. I mean, 20 years ago, America was in tremendous shape. We were running surpluses. Alan Greenspan, the head of the Fed at that time, was worried we were going to have no federal debt in 10 years, which turned out to be completely off the market course. But kind of gradually over that period of time, we followed policies which tended to, first of all, retard growth. I mean, that 20-year period has been a very sluggish growth period, uh, but it's also tended to benefit the people with money. Uh, so as Main Street has struggled, and you know, real disposable incomes are roughly flat over that period of time, but asset prices have exploded. And a lot of that is because interest rates have collapsed, which tends to drive up interest rates. I'm sorry, asset prices. So it's been a really unfortunate thing. I think one of the things is that when you have interest rates at such a ridiculously low level for so long, capitalism doesn't work very well. Uh, Capitalism thrives when you have creative destruction. When interest rates are too low, it allows companies that really aren't very good to stay around and they kind of wreck it for everybody else. Now, obviously, you get the super powerful companies like Google and Amazon and Microsoft. that are able to, you know, that doesn't affect them. But most of the rest of the world has to compete with the so-called zombies, these companies that really are basically brain dead, but they're kept alive by super low interest rates. So, and there's a lot of things it does. It also hurts the banking system when interest rates are too low and you get an inverted or flat yield curve like we have right now, which disincentivizes banks to lend. And So there's just a whole lot of things that, that start going wrong when you destroy interest rates. Talk,
1: speaking of interest rates, talk a little bit about this weird um, phenomenon where you have interest rates in the U.S., which is supposed to be the safest country in the world, markedly higher than you see rates in Europe. How, I mean, to the average investor, you, you're, you're taught that, that the higher the interest rate, the more implied risk that you're taking. And yet you have countries in Europe where there's low interest rates, or negative. Or negative in, in countries that I think most people would perceive as,
0: as more risky than the U.S. Why is that happening? It's a function of the central banks and their direct involvement in suppressing interest rates. And the reality is the European Central Bank has been even more aggressive in doing that than the Fed. So, for example, the Fed owns uh, government bonds equivalent to about 20 percent of the total size of the U.S. economy or GDP. And they've bought that all with this fake money that they've created. It's fake digital money. The European Central Bank has twice as much. They have about 40% of government bonds in their kitty uh, that they've bought, again, with this fabricated money. And Bank of Japan has done even more. So, and that's, that's actually kind of an interesting point relative to what you were saying earlier about, well, isn't that really bullish for asset prices and stocks to have interest rates really low? Well, those countries have even lower interest rates, and yet they have much cheaper stocks you know, from a valuation standpoint. So that tells you that it's not the magic bullet. Uh, and when I say it, I mean super low interest rates, because there's a belief that if, if, if a 2% interest rate isn't doing the job, we'll cut it to 1, and if 1 doesn't do it, cut it to 0, and if 0 doesn't do it, go to negative. But that isn't, that's not what's happening. And I think what's interesting to your point is that the U.S. does have higher interest rates than almost any other developed country, and yet it's got a better growth rate than almost any other, even though it's very much lower than it used to be, which I think kind of proves my point that if you have interest rates, it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Now, obviously, too high is is bad, but I think too low is bad, too. Now, just an aside here that a lot of people aren't aware of, I wasn't aware of until recently, the Fed really has a triple mandate. Not only keep inflation low and not only maintain uh, high employment, low unemployment, but also moderate interest rates, and everybody goes well. Moderate, okay, that means low. Well, no, it means moderate. It means a healthy interest rate. And if interest rates are too low, that's not good either. Speaking of the,
1: you know, continuing on the Fed, the Fed route. One of the things that we've seen over time has been the Fed raises rates when the economy is strong and overheated, and the Fed cuts rates when the economy is weak and needs support. And then, you know, as we went to zero interest rates. Um, or near there, there became this thought of, oh, my God, we need to raise interest rates. Um, We we better raise them because if we don't raise them and we have another type of recession or economic shock, there will be nowhere to cut them. They've raised rates somewhat. They've raised them moderately. But I think that there's a lot of people out there going, is an interest rate cut from these levels really going to be stimulative enough to help us if we are in any type of real economic um, shock or, or recession? What what other tools do they have to to pull on, and
0: do you think they will resort to those? Terrific point, really terrific point, and it's exactly right. I mean, if you look historically, when the economy goes from expansion to contraction, the Fed has to cut interest rates by, you know, four to five to six percent, or in our lingo, four to five hundred to six hundred basis points. Well, right now, the Fed funds rate is two and three eighths percent. So, obviously, they don't have that kind of ability to cut, and they know that. And I think what's shocking is that they're already, they, the Fed, the Fed heads, the talking Fed heads are talking about, if we do get into, and when we get into another downturn, uh, they're going to resort to QE again. They may, Janet Yellen brought up the idea of buying stocks, the Fed buying stocks. You are aware that one of my longstanding predictions is in the next financial crisis, the Fed will target corporate bonds, which I actually think is smart uh, if it's done only during an extreme event. And that's part of the problem is that all these things that are supposed to be done only during a crisis tend to become standard policy. Right. It becomes a Pandora's box. Exactly. And then it has all kinds of negative implications and effects. So I think they're going to have to resort to, this is simply the math tells you, they're going to have to resort to very aggressive measures uh, during the next crisis. And you know, one thing we've learned, I think, with uh, with pretty good clarity is that two and three-eighths is the peak for this particular rate hiking cycle. Mm-hmm. Now, there are those that believe the economy is going to be strong enough that the Fed will resume hiking. Uh, I don't think so. Well, all, obviously, only time will tell. Zooming out maybe a little bit from from
1: macro and, and central bank talk, you know, you've been, you said, I think 40 years in the business um, is not too far on the horizon for you. When you look back at your, your investor and your client base, um, what characteristics do you see in, in good clients and what characteristics do you see in bad clients? And, and do you think that they're predictive of, of how those people do in the markets?
0: Yes. I think certain people have, whether it's their background or just genetically, I don't know what it is, but certain people tend to chase performance. And those people also have a tendency to look at their accounts very frequently. And I think there's a very high correlation between those people that look at their accounts, let's say, daily or even multiple times a day and poor performance. And why is that? Well, because I think that when you're doing that, you have a tendency, even if you have a portfolio that's diversified and you're doing that on a regular basis, and if you're not just looking to look, but you're actually looking to try to make adjustments and kind of overrule your investment advisor, you're going to look at those areas that have been doing really well lately and say, well, let's move money there and let's get out of this dog. And uh, Unfortunately, and that can work short-term. In fact, it usually does, which makes it even worse because people get validation of kind of that bad behavior, whereas those people that take the long-term view more of the Buffett-esque approach and don't really look at it. I mean, his mentor was Benjamin Graham, who had the great line that in the short run, the market's a voting machine. In the long run, it's a weighing machine, So, which really means that it's kind of a popularity contest in your term. But in the long term, value comes out. And yet most people behave in a way that's exactly the opposite of that. So those people that take more of a hands-off approach realize that things are going to fluctuate. If something's got a lot of value and it goes down, let's say energy today, let's buy more of it. Uh, you know, those people are the ones that succeed over time. Along those lines, I mean,
1: I think that some people say investing is a science and some people say investing is an art. If you had to pick, you can't say both. If you had to say it's more one or the other, what would you say? I'd say it's more art
0: than science. It is both, but I'd say art's the, the dominant part of it. And I think particularly today where the science part has become so. Uh, You know, so powerful because it's so much of money is moved today by quant-driven, computer-driven things, which you know are very sciencey, basically. And but they tend to go to extremes, like everything else does. And so that's when the art kicks in of saying, well, you know, uh, this is this is this is dominant now, but it's not going to be sustainable. And one of the hard parts is that you have to appreciate how long things can go, you know, too high or too low in valuation let's say. And so to be you have to be pretty disciplined and pretty careful because there is a lot of money that's moving the other way and you have to be respectful of how powerful that is. It's an interesting point you make about the
1: the algorithmic trading or the you know com- quantitative based trading because 50 years ago you didn't really have that in financial markets. It was it was it was purely people that were the investors which means it was probably highly emotional today, it's a it's a mix of humans and, and quantitative models trading. And, and do you think that makes it harder to play kind of contrarian, contrarian um, you know, basically betting or, or being greedy when people are fearful and, and fearful when people are greedy?
0: Yes, I think the answer is it is harder short-term. I think it's, because it is harder short-term, I think it's also more lucrative long-term. And I think that makes sense, that if Let's just follow on what I was saying a moment ago. If Because of all the dominance of these uh, computer-driven programs and other trend-following things, and it, it all kind of interrelates and feeds on itself that you just take things to outrageous levels both ways. And if you can, I mean, first of all, you can't be leveraged to fight that because if you're leveraged, you're fighting that you're going to get blown out before you're, you're uh, vindicated. And you also have to buy in gradually and you know, really have some staying power and be diversified so that even if that particular part of your for- portfolio is, is doing poorly, it's not destroying the overall portfolio. But then you get these tremendous swings. And then once it goes the other way, where instead of fighting the momentum, the momentum is now on your side and you're coming off of a very depressed level, for example, and so it's way down, uh, you know that's when you make just enormous profits. Mm-hmm. So I think, it's a, I think short-term, it's a more difficult environment to be a contrarian value-oriented person. I think long-term, it's, it's much more profitable.
1: So you, so I mentioned at the outset that you're probably the predominant author of the newsletter, and and I would assume that means that a lot of um, of these listeners are people that follow you closely, and so I guess I'd give you a chance to kind of. I mean, think you mentioned you're 63. You know, for people that are reading you, following you, what what would you tell them about the next chapter? Are you going to write off into the sunset um, tomorrow? Are you going to um, die at your desk, um, and then maybe speak to kind of some of the
0: listeners out there who, who follow you and share whatever you want. Well, I am at a stage where I need to uh, find a little more balance in my life. And uh, so my joke, which really isn't much of a joke, is I'm trying to go to downshift to full-time. Uh, certainly not part-time, but, you know, from time and a half, which has been really what I've done for most of my career. and uh, But it's great that I've got such a deep team. There's so many talented people that are part of our team and, and we're very fortunate to be partnered with GovCal that's also got great, not just macroeconomic research, but st- company-specific research. So it's, uh, you know, I think that the the, thing, the pieces are in place that allow me to get down to a, a more normal work week and hopefully that will give me many years to be uh, part of Evergreen.
1: And what, how do you see yourself spending... Um, that time. What, what what is your ideal as you go from uh, 70 hours a week to 40 hours a week? What will you focus on?
0: Well, I try to prioritize on obviously the things that I think I do best. try to get out from under those that I do worst, and uh, you know I think that my big picture analysis is my strength. I, mean, I think being able to identify to use a buzzword of the mega trends. Uh, and as I just said, I mean, one thing I've learned is that in this world that we're in, and you've kind of touched on this before, these mega trends tend to go further and longer than they used to. Uh, so adjusting for that, but still, I think, um, you know, being kind of a voice of experience and reason to our clients and to our readers, uh, you know, continuing to do the, the more valuable research and then con- synthesizing that into things like what we're doing now or to the newsletter and. And then being able to do something like a bubble 3.0, which is this book that I'm writing in in real time, and it, it's it's interesting that at, at certain points you look like it's uh, you know your viewpoint is being validated. Other times it looks like right now that oh no it, it's okay it's you know that wasn't really a bubble it was just a bull market. And uh, but you know as a footnote I still believe that this is very much bubble 3.0. And as we said earlier, if you look at what's happening with the IPOs. I mean there's just a lot of evidence of that. But uh, you know, I, I just I think experience matters, and and that's what I want to continue to bring to our clients and to the readers is this uh, 40 years of making mistakes and you know, doing things well, doing things wrong, trying to learn from the things that I did wrong, and and being honest about that. I think that there's a tendency in our business to think, oh, geez, based on who I am, I should be right almost all the time, and then you get into denial when you're wrong, and, and I think you have to constantly challenge. It. That's one thing that I really am trying to do is challenge my viewpoints by reading. Contrarian views, not just the ones that support what you believe. Uh, that's something I'd highly recommend to anybody in any profession. I mean, I think we all get into confirmation bias in, in whatever career we're in. So, I think that um, hopefully
1: you've enjoyed your first um, uh, encounter on the Evergreen Exchange, and I think, I have. and I think it's funny that the the majority of feedback has been great. We can't wait to hear another one. Maybe some people have said speak into the microphone it was a little too quiet that was sort of a critique and then there were a few um of your loyal readers who said i, I don't want to hear from anybody but dave and, and frankly i don't want to listen i read faster than i listen this is a giant waste of my time but for the people out there that that enjoy a different form of communication hopefully we'll bring you back i hope we get invited back i'm <laughs>
0: not too you. far away i'm not hard to find <laughs> thanks. thanks tyler